Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. There must be some kind of way out of here. I mean, the situation that we are in with the big tech platforms, it's no good. News audiences have become totally dependent on the platforms as like their primary news source. We go to Facebook, we go to Twitter to find out what is happening, to share links for other people about what is happening, to talk with everyone else about what is happening. News media, we become totally dependent on big tech for the traffic, for the ad revenue, for data. And the tech platforms themselves are totally dependent on us. Well, they're not. They're not dependent on us for anything, really. I mean, they've made it clear they don't need the news. They don't even like the news. It brings them nothing but headaches, public relations nightmares. It results in a negative user experience. And they've told us in no uncertain terms, they don't need us. Maybe they'll just turn off the news and everyone who depends on them for it can just go to hell. So yeah, we're looking for some kind of way out of here. Our government has stepped in to force a compromise and though I don't like it, I have accepted that it's happening, this compromise. I've compromised with the compromise, so now I'm compromised. I am part of the news industry push to get Google and Facebook to have to pay us, essentially forcing them to pay us for links to our news content. And my role in that has been to say, along with a group of other independent digital publishers that I've joined, 
okay if this is happening, if, if government is going to force big tech to pay news companies, then let's make sure that we little independent companies do not get cut out of this. And let's make sure that the money is split up fairly and evenly according to your editorial expenditure. And let's make sure that the public knows who is getting what. So that is what I'm advocating for as a member of a lobby group. That is my disclosure. That is my compromise. My guest today does not compromise. Cory Doctorow is a Toronto-born activist who has never stopped pushing for the foundational ideals of the internet. Communication by anyone and everyone to anyone and everyone. Creators' rights, freedom to remix, audience rights, freedom to share, privacy, openness, interoperability, all that good stuff that people kind of stopped talking about as the dominance of these tech platforms just became the way that things are. And the few people who still went on about it, well, they seemed like relics of a bygone age. They have been dismissed as, as techno-utopianists. But the difference between Cory Doctorow and the few other remaining people who talk that way is that he lives that way and it works. Cory Doctorow is a New York Times bestselling author but he refuses to sell his ebooks through Amazon because of the digital locks they put on their ebooks, which deprive readers of rights like the ability to share the things that they buy and own. Corey, I have to tell you, is a friend and a like an important person in my life. He's proven to me through the way that he conducts his career as both an author and an activist. And as, I don't know, like somebody who's given me advice and somebody who has been generous in exposing me to his audience when he was like one of the biggest bloggers in the world and somebody who has just demonstrated that it is possible, it is possible to make stuff, to have a life, a career as a creator without accepting the shitification of the way things are or the way things are going. He's shown me that we don't have to just accept it. He is inexplicably prolific. He writes book after book after book. He has written a book called Choke Point Capitalism. His newest book is a novel, Red Team Blues. It's a thriller about cryptocurrency shenanigans. He is hard to keep up with intellectually. I find him so, but it's always worth the workout. And he thinks he has a better way out of this. And he's in Toronto and joining me in our studio in a moment. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Ann Thomas, Jack Welch, Cassandra Stanisha, Stephen Buchart, Vicki Wallace, Zach Jardak, Sean Rozell, and Sherlene. Hi, my name is Sherlene. I'm a geologist living in Halifax. I support Canada Land so that they can continue to offer their content for free to anyone who's looking for thoughtful, in-depth, and knowledgeable stories about Canada that we don't get anywhere else. And of course, as a Nova Scotian, I love listening to anything that Matea Roach has to say. Corey, let's get right into your four-point plan to save the news from big tech. Point number one, we need a new comprehensive privacy law. What a privacy law gets you here is a, a general prohibition on surveillance advertising. Surveillance advertising, which a lot of people are very, very familiar with, but uh, essentially behavioral be ad. behavior tracking. Yeah. I go and I visit a website for a trip to Mexico 
and then every ad that I look right. at for the next month is about a trip to Mexico. Yeah, and the, the broker who's doing that targeting is also buying location data that's being slurped up by the apps on your phone. It, they're buying information from major retailers about what you shop for and, and increasingly like what part of the grocery store you were in or where your eyes, you know, rested on the shelf. There's a lot of gaze tracking in grocery stores now. A lot of just super invasive stuff. So we could get rid of that and everybody will feel really good about that from just a, like, let's get rid of this creepiness. It's a generally good pro-privacy thing. When we think about how those breaches are used to target people by stalkers, bad actors, by military, by cops— uh, by foreign adversaries, just like all of this stuff, just this surveillance data shouldn't exist. But more to the point, I mean, it's a long conversation for another forum, you know, and it's been going on for many years, right? And the counter argument is like, do I really give a shit? Right. Uh, you know, the, the counter argument from the advertisers is, well, we're, we're able to give people highly relevant ads yeah, for things so that they the, want. That's always been the argument: is that people give their consent because they like a good ad, yeah, right? And uh, the way that we can tell they give their consent is that when they're confronted by a garbage novella of legalese somewhere in the process of using a website. They say, I agree at the bottom I agree. of the yeah. And they don't notice that it says, like, by being dumb enough to use this service, you agree that you're, you know, I'm allowed to come over to your house, <laughs> punch your grandmother, wear your underwear, make long distance calls, eat the food in your fridge. They just click, I agree, right? Yeah. You have passionate and expansive thoughts as to why we do and should care about privacy. Let's sure. leave them aside for no, now. But let's the... ask what people want, right? So when, when right. Apple said, Corey, what do people want? So Apple said, hey, Apple users, uh, would you like to click this box and never be tracked again? And 96% of iOS users, that's Apple's mobile platform, clicked, please never track me again. I presume the other 4% were confused or working for Facebook. Right. Now, of course, Apple in making privacy a part of their product was also... Selecting for those people, perhaps? Not just that, uh, but, but you know, they had self-interest. Uh, this was sure. like uh, certainly... Uh, oh, yeah, no, no, for sure. Shifting and, the market in their favor from let's competitors. Let's be clear. Apple then commenced spying on those same users, right, 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 right. as aggressively as Facebook ever had. But the, the question of revealed preference here is very easy to settle. We gave people the chance to opt out, not even opt into tracking, yeah. opt out of tracking, 96% opted When out. you make it clear, we don't want it. Right. Okay. Now that's all fine. We're here to talk about how this is going to benefit sure. the news industry. So if we said there's a privacy law, you need affirmative consent to track, it needs to be uh, uh, meaningful consent, it needs to be informed consent, it needs to be continuous consent. To a first approximation, there would be no behavioral data to gather because nobody is going to click OK. So now you have to find another way to target users or to target ads, rather. And we have a way of targeting ads based on not what we know about the user, but other factors. Today, we call it contextual advertising. For the 700 years before 20 years ago, we just called it advertising. You put the car ad in the car section of the newspaper. Exactly. You put the movie ad in right. the entertainment section of the right. newspaper. You want to return to that. Everybody in the ad world has gotten very, very used to incredibly laser-specific demographic targeting, behavioral tracking, and things like that. Uh, they would call that a massive regression. Sure. But it does, to your point, favor publishers because yeah. those of us who publish – entertainment websites. Now, you know, who's going to get the ad from the, you know, the movie that wants to let everybody who likes movies right. know that there's a new movie, take away the advertiser's ability to select their ad for like who has spent over a thousand dollars on movies this year right. and lives in this market and is of this age group and this income level and instead just put the goddamn ad on a movie website. In the research, we see that context ads underperform targeting by behavior by about 5%. 
Really? Yeah. All of this technology of hyper-targeting and everything that they've come up with for surveillance advertising gives a 5% advantage of just putting the car ad in the wheel section? Yeah, I think that what's happened is that there are probably some spectacular gains from behavioral advertising, but they're short-lived because almost all stimulus regresses to the mean, right? So there was a time when $3.99 was not $4, and now it is. There was a time when seeing a targeted ad was like, gosh, that seems very relevant to something I've been thinking about, and then it just becomes noise. Here's where I actually can offer some maybe anecdotal, but Mm -hmm. like lived experience in this, because podcasting ad tech is um, maybe like 10 to 15 years behind display ad tech, the, the trackability, and, and, you know, really to the dismay of the industry, mm-hmm. we do not have the same data mm-hmm. that a website has mm-hmm. about, you know, really it's when somebody downloads the podcast, we know where they are. We might know what device they used or what, what app they used. Uh, we don't know a lot more than that. Yeah. And then what they do with the ad, well, that's why we give the promo codes, you know? Right. So there is a huge movement to introduce into podcasting the same ad dynamics that exist with display ads on the web mm-hmm. and to basically aggregate ad buys so that you're no longer saying, I want to buy an ad on Canada Land or I want to buy an ad yeah. on the daily, but I want to buy an ad that goes to this demographic based on everything we know about them from the internet. And I have been warned that this is going to be terrible for podcasting. Basically, it says that my audiences were just basically like we just get into a bidding situation with everybody else who has the same demographic. That's right. Um, we operate an old-fashioned ad business where we actually have a human being, a lovely colleague named Dory, who will talk to yeah. the client. And to your point about contextual advertising, well, we know our stuff. Yeah. So when somebody comes with a product, it's like, yeah, you don't really want to have that product on that show. You know right. who's going to do it? You know who's actually going to be passionate about your product? You want to put that on this show instead. Right. And probably not on that episode because it's it's just going to be a bad mood fit with what right. they talk about. The exact same thing that salespeople at newspapers did for yep. decade after decade. It seems to work okay. So that's like a blast from the past, but maybe that's sort of like a page from the future. Well, and, and, and before we move on. The one thing to note about this is that this is an area in which the public, the audience, and the publishers are class allies because nobody wants to be spied on, and the publishers don't benefit from the spying. And so there are a lot of people who are like, I am so sick of being spied on. So it's like, if this is a you and what army story, well, here's the army. It's all the people who don't want to be spied on. Okay, so that was the first item on our list of how to save the news from our tech overlords. We should pass a comprehensive privacy law to ban surveillance advertising. Okay, now we move on, Corey. What's number two? You're an old internet person. I'm an old internet person. There is an old internet idea that is really important to creating the internet that we have today, which is the end-to-end principle. And this was the engineering principle that was right there from the start when they started to design packet switch networks as alternative to circuit switch network. Circuit switch network was the old Bell Canada system. Um, Every call was routed through Bell's central office. Bell decided whether the call would be connected. Bell decided what services could run over those lines. You may remember when Bell brought in uh, caller ID, we all had to pay $1.99 a month to find out who was calling us first. Mm -hmm. No one in an end-to-end world, and an end-to-end world is one in which the only job of the intermediary 
is to deliver data from willing senders to willing receivers. No one in that world was ever able to do a caller ID, right? Like if you want to check your email, you don't have to pay $1.99 extra a month to find out who it's from before you open the message. A highlight of my journalistic career was uh, meeting Vince Cerf at an uh-huh. event that you and I attended together in Mexico City, sure. uh, the father of the internet and of the TCP IP. Yeah. Let's not get too wonky here, but essentially this is just like the basic idea from which this all came, yeah. which is that the network itself is just there. Corey wants to send Jesse information. The network must deliver the information that Corey sends to The network's job is to make a best effort to efficiently deliver that data. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a more familiar name for this from a more recent fight that was coined by an eminent Canadian who lives in America, Tim Wu. And Tim coined this term network neutrality Mm -hmm. to describe a phone company or an ISP that takes as its duty to serve back the data you request as efficiently as it can, rather than trying to shape what you get to its own benefit, right? Rather than giving you what its shareholders wish you'd asked for, it gives you what you asked for. So if you ask for a Netflix stream, it gives you a Netflix stream instead of the stream owned by its parent company. It doesn't slow down the Netflix stream to make your stream more attractive and so on. The reason I'm going into all this detail is because that is not how social media or any other internet service works. If you sign up for social media and you list out for that social media platform all the people who matter to you, and you say, tell me when those people post something for the people who follow them to see. That's the entry value proposition of all the social media. Who do you want to follow on Twitter? Who do you want to follow on Facebook? Right. We'll give you their posts. And it was at one point. And then, you know, all these people went to the Darth Vader MBA, which, you know, has as its core principle, I've altered the deal, pray I don't alter it further. So you show up, you articulate your list of people you want to follow. And they say, we'll just show you that stuff. I mean, Facebook like literally said this. They said, stop using MySpace. That's the thing owned by the crepulent, senescent, Australian evil billionaire who spies on you all the time. Come use Facebook. We will never spy on you. And also, if you just tell us who matters to you, that's all we're going to show you. And then after a certain point, once people are locked in on that platform, and and with social media, people get locked in really easily because we lock each other in. Mm -hmm. It's mutual hostage taking. I ended up on Facebook because you were there. You're staying on Facebook because I'm there. We would have to agree that we were both going to leave, and for that to happen, we'd have to get everyone else who matters to us to agree. I don't even know why I'm on Facebook anymore, but but I'm there. I mean, I'm not anymore. But mm-hmm. but you know, it's it's we have this collective action problem, right? We can't leave, even though we don't want to stay. Right. And so, so once they have that lock-in, they start to shift the value. They start to shift the distributions, so that first they maybe give it to advertisers, so they start spying on you, so that the advertisers can hit you. They might give it to media companies. I call this uh, the giant teddy bear school where if you've ever been down to the X by like 10 a.m. on the midway, there's some poor slob with a giant teddy bear who supposedly got it by throwing five balls in a peach basket. But really, the carny has said, hey, I like your face. If you can get one ball in, I'll give you a keychain. If you get two keychains, you can get a teddy bear. They make sure somebody wins so that everybody can see a winner. That's right. Yeah, Joe Rogan gets $100 million for podcasting. So they go to media companies and they say, how about you make content for our platform? And That's work- why everybody pivoted to video. The, the, the first few companies to do it right. were just flooded in traffic. Giant teddy bears. Then so- they turn off the tap and all all of a sudden, you're uh, diminishing returns. And they start charging you money. Yeah. Right? They start saying, hey, you remember when we non-consensually rammed your content into the eyeballs of people who never asked to see it, and some of them decided that they liked it enough to subscribe? Those people, if you want to keep reaching them, you're going to have to pay us to boost your content, right? And so maybe it's a blue tick or a gold tick. Maybe it's Instagram verification. Maybe it's Facebook boosting. They all have some version of this, or if they haven't got it yet, they will soon enough, right? Yeah. TikTok is This is a process that you've up. been describing uh, in various corners of the media as the inshittification yeah. of social media, that the path of the, that it seems like every platform is taken from yeah. offering really, really attractive goodies for free 
uh, to just sort of becoming this monotonous p- part of life, uh, and then ultimately just becoming a pile of shit. A pile of shit. Yeah. So what is the so ba- basically the principle here? Yeah. The, the, the big idea here is when the opportunity arises to regulate these companies, either directly through legislation or as part of a settlement for one of their many abuses, because these companies are all racking up all of this kind of policy debt in the form of privacy abuses, unfair practices, and so on. They're all going to be like in front of a prosecutor trying to negotiate a deal. We say to them, you are now bound by the N10 principle, and your job is to deliver messages from willing senders to willing receivers as efficiently and effectively as you can. And so that means that if I subscribe to your feed, then my default feed, unless I choose an algorithmic one or recommendation one or whatever, my default feed should be all the things posted by all the people who I asked to see this stuff. But for our specific conversation, the, the, the benefit to news publishers is if 20,000 people said that they like Canada Land on Facebook, then my audience on Facebook is 20,000 Is 20,000. Yeah. Maybe you can pay to boost to other people, but you don't have to pay to boost to reach to those people. people. And, and the, the, so, you know, this is depriving Facebook of the opportunity to claw value back from you. It's another instance in which you are aligned with the users because the users want to see what they ask to see. Mm-hmm. And while it may be hard to make a law that says this, there are certainly lots of opportunities to have settlements that say this, right? Okay, that's number two, end-to-end delivery. doesn't matter if you are Google or Facebook or Twitter or Amazon, whoever you are, you cannot get in the way. If I ask for something from someone, you are there to give it to me. You cannot tax me. You cannot force feed me things that I don't want or limit my access to the things that I have asked for. And that is part two of your plan to get big tech out of the way and save the news business. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free 
with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. What's number three? Number three is subscription revenue collected through apps. Yeah. When the platforms started, the mobile platforms, iOS and Android kicked off, they offered very competitive rates to people who built apps and moved inside their silo. I remember when Steve Jobs unveiled the iPad, I wrote a very dismissive article about it, and I said, journalists are jumping on on the bandwagon because they're looking for a daddy figure mm-hmm. who will tell them that everything's going to be fine. I remember the iPad. I mean, that, the Toronto Star literally, like, their digital future, their, like, way out of the downward spiral they're on was going to be through a tablet app. Right. And, and so just like Apple, you know, said we're going to be the privacy tool and then started spying on you. Apple said, we're going to be the revenue-generating tool, and then started taking publishers' money. So uh, they went from a 30% commission on the initial sale, so if you sold the app for $5, they got 30%, to a 30% commission on lifetime revenues. Mm -hmm. And they started to enforce it in more and more draconian ways, where if you, uh, within the app, had a button that you clicked that jumped to the web that let you fill in a payment form and then go back to the app, Apple would delist those apps from the App Store. There's been, you know, some pretty important lawsuits over this with Epic, who make Fortnite and so on. The natural price for a payment processing uh, in competitive markets is like one to five percent, right? That's that's what yeah. we see. In if real you're the markets. intermediary who's just handling the transaction, that's yeah. typically what you would get. Yeah, and um, it's a very easy pitch, right? If you get your subscription revenue through the App Store right now, Apple takes thirty percent. If we cut it to five percent you would add to your revenue per subscriber 25% at the flick of a switch. So regulations that uh, essentially break up the, the app stores. Yeah. So in the European Union, we have the Digital Markets Act, which is going to do this. It's going to require app store choice. And in the U.S., there was a bill that died in the last Congress, uh, the Open App Markets Act, that will probably be reintroduced in this Congress. I want to tell you a, a very short story here Sure. that also is about podcast exceptionalism. And this, this exceptionalism has nothing to do, I think, with the amazing innovative thinking within podcasting or my incredible foresight as to how these nefarious forces could be circumvented. It has everything to do with just how marginal we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think we were an afterthought. It didn't, it, it didn't matter enough. So that for many years... When Apple's podcast person visited Toronto, I would invite them to come meet with me, and they were good enough to do so. And every time they did, at the beginning, it was Apple's podcast person from the Apple podcast team, which was just that person. And over the years, when they realized, wow, this is a major way. We're not making money off these podcasts, but if we track how people are using their Apple devices— they are spending an incredible amount of time listening mm-hmm. to podcasts. Maybe we should take this seriously. And, of course, that led to a podcasting boom, and, and Apple now takes podcasting seriously. And let's just say Apple, the privacy company, starts with the insight, maybe if we just track how people use their iPhones. For sure. I mean, I'm, I'm speculating. I don't, I don't, I, but I have to imagine they know uh, what, what app you're on on your iPhone. Every time I met with Apple's podcasting people, I begged them, please, this is my, my, my number one ask. It's my only ask. Let me say to my listener, hey, look at your Apple device right now. If you want to support Canada Land, there's a button that is pulsating. Press that button. You'll become a subscriber. And please take a cut. Right. Because the amount of friction where I, in the early years when it was uh, Patreon, before we could have, you know, there's still a certain amount of friction in saying click the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. But in the early days, it was like, I couldn't even send you to Canada, and I had to send you to some other website. 
And then on that website, you're going through a, you're giving some strange website that maybe you never heard of before your credit card information. This is Patreon. This is Patreon, which yeah. now people are familiar with, but in the early sure. days it was of course. Why? Yeah. What am I? Who am I dealing with here? Yeah. Uh, so I knew that if, if in those early days people have already given their credit card information to Apple, you could build it into the tech to just press a button and become a subscriber, and then we could start doing things like ad free feeds and things like that. And I wanted them. Even though it meant that I wouldn't get their email addresses, sure. Apple would have that instead. I wanted that. And they ignored me and every other podcast publisher. And I know that that's what podcast publishers were asking for. When they finally offered that, which, which was uh, maybe two years ago, we had already been offering it through Patreon and later Supercast, as had many other podcast publishers. And we had built a robust subscription-based business. And we had slowly gotten people used to the sign-up process. And it could always be better. But by the time Apple let us do that, and yes, the fees that we have to pay to Apple are many multiples of what we've ever paid to Patreon or anybody else. But because we were so late to being – like we're so small podcasting mm -hmm. that the App Store wasn't even that interested in us. There was not that mm -hmm. much money to be made. Um, we found a workaround. Mm -hmm. And so now, yeah, we offer a Apple subscription. It's the least beneficial to our company of all the different options. Mm -hmm. And it's the least popular. Hmm. It's the least popular. Maybe it never would have been as effective as I had hoped, but maybe we, we, we just done such a good job over the years of getting people used to this other idea sure. that the convenience of just pressing the Apple button, you know, we do some business there. Right. It's okay. Right. But most of our subscription business is through these other solutions. Right. And you would expect that in a kind of uh, ideal world to drive Apple to try and figure out how to be more valuable to you. Mm -hmm. Right. That's the... Look, there are people out there who are Hayek-pilled who think that markets solve all of our problems. I'm not one of those people. I'm kind of a market skeptic in a lot of ways, which is weird for someone who talks about a competition as much as I do. But I do think that competition disciplines firms, right? If a company has to keep your business by making you happy, they will do more to make you happy than if they just get to keep your business anyway. That's true. And now when I meet with Apple's people, and, they, and, and now they have a robust podcast team, many of whom are drawn from the world of public radio and podcasting, mm -hmm. and they sort of speak the same language and are of the same culture. And it's interesting to meet with Apple. The dynamics have shifted because I think I, I can't speak to whether they're disappointed with the performance of their, of their subscription service or not, but they are constantly asking me, like, how much of, of your subscription business comes from us now that we're letting you do this? What can we do to make it better? Mm -hmm. It's an version of the old relationship where I was begging them for features that they just couldn't be bothered to provide. Right. And so the argument that, you know, the press has about big tech broadly is that when they go to big tech and say, give me something that will help me publish the news better, big tech says, what's in it for me? But here you have an environment in which a big tech platform is competing and it's not the, it doesn't have market dominance. It doesn't have lock-in. And what it's doing is coming to you and saying, what can I do for you? Mm -hmm. And I, I, like, I don't think that is uh, attributable to the unique character of Apple. Like, I don't think it makes Apple a better company. I think it has to do with the economic circumstances of Apple. I think that, you know, there's this saying, you know, if you're not paying for the product, you're the product. Like, everyone who's ever bought a John Deere tractor or an iPhone and then been forced to use their official repair depots and pay like 10X knows that paying for the product doesn't make you not the product. Right? What makes you not the product, what causes firms to treat you with respect is not you bribing them with money. It's them not having a choice because they're disciplined by either regulation or competition. I think all of your solutions so far have to do with if the game is uh, unfair, 
Mm-hmm. And when we look at who's winning and who's losing, it just seems incredibly tilted. You know, don't hate the player, hate the game, change the rules. So let's move on to number four. And this one, this is a biggie. It's the same idea of antitrust, of breaking them up, applied to the ad tech sector. You think we should break up Google and Facebook meta into smaller pieces so that, yes, they still maintain their ad businesses, but they're separate from the rest of their businesses. And one of the reasons to do this, as I understand it, is that these have become behemoths. These companies snap up 51% of every dollar in every ad transaction. Before we figure out how to solve for that, Corey, how do they get there? How do they pull that off? How does ad tech get 51 cents at every dollar? Uh, One way that they do it is by being vertically integrated. So the two big ad tech stacks, which are run by Meta and Google, these are both two ad tech stacks that they got through acquisitions, not through internal development. They bought these companies Mm -hmm. in roll-ups that would have been prohibited back when antitrust law was rigorously enforced. They represent, in every ad transaction or most ad transactions, they represent the buyer. So they're the buyer's agent. They represent the seller, the publisher. Uh, So they're the seller's agent. And they operate the marketplace in which the buyer and the seller meet to exchange an ad for a place to put that ad, Mm -hmm. right? And at each stage of that negotiation, they have the opportunity to rake off big fees, but also to organize things so that um, uh, the fees are maximized and so that the, the greatest take goes to the intermediary, the middleman, and not to the advertiser, nor to the publisher. And in fact, oftentimes we talk about this from a publisher-centric way, but there is a class ally of publishers in this, believe it or not, and it's advertisers who are getting ripped off like crazy, right? They're paying more to reach fewer people in a fraud-riddled marketplace that is under-policed by two lazy monopolists who are able to scrape 51 cents out of every dollar and they're able to do it because they, they run the whole stack. And if that wasn't bad enough, in the Texas Attorney General's case, we learned that Facebook and Google have an illegal collusive arrangement called Jedi Blue, where they got together and they just cooked the market, like, like the Pope dividing up the new world, so they would each be guaranteed a share and they would exclude other companies that might come in and offer more money to either advertisers or, or to publishers or a better deal to advertisers. So they could fence them out and they could maintain this duopoly. So if I am launching an ad campaign and I've got a budget of $100,000, I'm going on to my Google campaign to place my ads, choose my demographics. It's a, it's a super – I love this. i got great data. Sure. I can choose my demographics. But Google is taking a cut from me from that $100,000. Right. On the other side of it, you've got news publishers and every other publisher who's running Google AdWords. Right. And they're receiving payments in, in exchange for putting those ads on their websites – And every dollar that comes in, they're sharing that with Google as well. And Google is a publisher, right? So Google is also my competitor in in that instance as well. So they are competing with the people you want to place your ads with. And so Google might say, although the best fit for your ad is one of our rivals, we'll take the ad. Right. Right. So you're reaching a worse audience as well, and you might be paying more for it. And to boot, there's only one real competitor, and that's Facebook. Facebook. And they're price-fixing with Yeah, I mean, this is just basically the referee pays the coaches of yeah. both teams. And the referee is getting incredibly wealthy, and the game is getting worse and worse. And the referee is like, the great forces of history have come to bear on the game to make it worse. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I own the wages of both teams. So this is Antitrust 101. Yeah. This is a situation where really 
competition would would do the sure. trick. And Mike Lee in the United States, who's a, an American senator, has introduced a bill, the America Act. But what's interesting is who's sponsoring it, because it's co-sponsored by the likes of Elizabeth Warren and Ted Cruz. Mm-hmm. So this is an issue that uh, has a lot of legs behind Antitrust it. is heating up in the United States of America for reasons that you heard about and spoke about on Commons Monopoly series. Uh, we're a laggard and we have a broken competition act in we which do. all they need to demonstrate is that consolidation and monopolization presents efficiencies for them. Right. For them. Yeah. Canada's Canada does not have a fit for purpose law. It also not for has, the consumer, not for right. the public, not for publishers. However, the silver lining, I suppose, is that if antitrust is back in fashion in the States five to ten years from now, that'll have an impact well, on us. I also, suppose. if they break up ad tech in the US. Yeah, we're not gonna it's can, it's yeah, hard Canada to imagine will that be, we'll be yeah. yeah. You'll be able to do like Google and Facebook have a lot of influence in Canada, don't get me wrong, but they're not going to be able, I think, to get a regulation passed that says Canada Land must do business with Google and Facebook and not with one of the other companies that pops up in the wake of them being broken up in the U.S. All right. So this fixes things for news publishers. Who, a little. A little bit. Those who do advertising on their websites. Right. In that uh, they're keeping more of that money. Right. So that all sounds swell. My only complaint with your enchidification process that you've described, because it perfectly describes what's happening to each of these platforms. But I've heard you lay it out here and elsewhere, and it's like, yeah, like like that, that it conjures up an image that Zuckerberg was like rubbing mm. his palms together and planning to enchidify Facebook. And I've never met a tech owner sure, who no. doesn't think that they're actually doing something wonderful for the world. Sure. This is just what happens when you're not disciplined by regulation It's just or what happens. It's the game. And the game, right. the game is at, at different junctures in the game, you look at the rules and you see uh, what, what is my path to advantage based on these rules. I mean, know? and to be clear, the investors are often like, how do we eliminate competition, right? Yeah. Like Peter, oh, they, Thiel, Peter Thiel says competition is for losers. The terrifying, enduring priapism of Warren Buffett whenever he talks about wide, sustainable moats for his businesses to, yeah. to stop competition from entering the market. No, I'm not trying to say that they're not evil. I'm just saying that they're not, they don't, they don't have that level of forethought. No, I'm just saying, yeah, given the imperatives of the market and yeah. in the absence of regulation or competition, this is where you end up, right? Just like crabs always emerge evolutionarily, or we keep getting the eye or wings yeah. develop on different animals, a platform, an intermediary without regulation or competition We'll figure out how to take more value from either side of the intermediated relationship until there's none left for anyone else. So I'm trying to figure out my own path forward for this business. And also I think about it for other news businesses in Canada. And what I see is like, I believe them. I believe Google and Facebook when they say, if this is the way it's going to be, we're just turning news off. Because Facebook has already done it, really. Mm-hmm. They've just choked it to the point where it's a drip so, so that they don't have the same bad look that Google got for that week when they turn it off completely. Right. Unless you paid a boost. Unless you paid a boost. But they've said this explicitly, that, that news has become a toxic part of people's experience. They don't mm-hmm. want as much so much news in, on people's news feeds. Right. And uh, I believe that it is certainly possible. I don't claim to know whether they're bluffing or not for a fact, but I, I think it's entirely possible that that, uh, it'll, it, that if they're forced to pay for news that they link to, they'll just stop linking to it, and that's Google and Facebook. And I'm looking at that and saying, huh, maybe that's okay. Maybe that's okay. Maybe we need to craft a new deal. Like, has it been so great having them in the picture? You know? And maybe we need to turn to the public and say, you can no longer count on these places to deliver you any news information. If you want news information, you're going to have to go directly to people who provide it, and you're going to have to pay them for it. And we can mount a case for subscription revenue based on that. 
we need to refine our audience. We, we've had too many conversations in news about like, well, nobody will pay for news because most people won't pay for news. Right. Nobody says, I'm not going to open up a vegan burger joint because, because, most, people like because most people like McDonald's. Right. Right. You're, you, what, all you're concerned about is, oh, there is, is there, is there, is a there not a market for vegan hamburgers? In some places there is. Sure. Right. It, the actual paying news consumer has never been more than 10% of the adult population. You're right. Yeah. We've lost track of, of, there are people who'll pay for news, but we've gotten so seduced by the bringing news to the masses, which is what social media did. All of a sudden, everybody's trading news back and forth and commenting on news. And I just wonder if purely by luck, I haven't stumbled, and those of us in podcast news haven't stumbled upon the formula that actually can work like tomorrow. And we have a product that is archaic. It's MP3 files delivered over RSS. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. this, this old tech. A nobler weapon from a more civilized age. That's right. And every few years, somebody comes along. I remember back at the CBC, they originally refused to invest in podcasts because they had just bought a proprietary video str- streaming that. service. And they said, well, look, look, we want all of our audio to go through this video player because then we can put ads on it and we can use all the data we get from our website. I'm like, yeah, but who wants to listen to a radio show on on your shitty webpage? That failed, right? And through the years, everybody, the New York Times just launched an audio app. CBC has their own audio app. Every single audio publisher has tried to like Spotify. And even Spotify had to accept, we're going to let every single podcast onto our platform because anybody who's tried to create, oh, this is the best curated little Netflix of audio has failed because it's much like the web itself. It's resilient. The, the, The beauty of podcasting is that any product that you try to improve upon the openness of podcasting is going to be a more limited, it's going to offer people less you know? Yeah. So we, we, we just by stupid luck, um, because audio was the last thing that big tech had its mind on. Yeah. I think we have something that works that you have to get all four of those policy initiatives in place, not just in America, but around the world to, mm. to, 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 to get the results. Whereas those four policy initiatives kind of describe the way things were at the beginning of the internet, which is kind of where podcasting still is. So you're right. But how many bullets can podcasting dodge, right? Because the open web (laughs) is getting less and less open by the day, Yeah. right? And, you know, here's what I think. I think that you're putting a logical exclusive aura where you want an and. Like, you're right. You've got a good thing going, and maybe you don't have to change it. But if you want to defend it over the long term, we need policies that are going to tip in favor of openness and tip the distribution towards the creative and news-gathering workforce and away from intermediaries and capital, mm-hmm. right? That's how we get a fairer arrangement. My favorite theory of change comes from my arch nemesis, Milton Friedman. I like to quote him as often as I can because I like to think that as he looks up from the spit he's roasting on in hell and hears his words in my mouth, that he gets especially angry. And Milton Friedman, for, for people who don't know, he was the crank who basically started the Chicago School of Economics. He had this idea that we should reverse all the gains from the New Deal from the social contract after World War II. And people would say to Milton, how are you going to convince people to do this? They like their kids going to school and not working in mills. Weekends are nice. Weekends are great. And Friedman would say, eventually there will come a crisis. And when that happens, people will reach for ideas that are lying around. And ideas will move from the fringe to the center very quickly. And the arrangement we have between big tech and the news is so inequitable 
so unstable, so fragile, that it keeps lurching from crisis to crisis. And at each crisis, we say something must be done. But because the only ideas we have lying around are, how about a link tax? Every single time, we reach for the link tax, and we hope that we'll get a different outcome. I think that if we want better bargaining between the news and tech, that what we need to do is change the shape of the market. And as I keep noting, as I go through these four proposals, these are proposals that everybody should want except for shareholders of tech firms, right? These are proposals that benefit all of us. And so when you say, well, how are we going to get change in Canada? Canada, you know, is nowhere near doing this. What I'm saying is hitch the news to the wagon of all the advertisers who want to stop getting ripped off by ad fraud, all the members of the public who are sick and tired of being spied on. And now you've got a force to be reckoned with. Mm -hmm. You know, James Boyle, he says that uh, before the term uh, ecology was coined, some people cared about owls and some people cared about the ozone layer, but they were like, what does the destiny of charismatic nocturnal avians have to do with the gaseous composition of the upper atmosphere? They didn't have a movement. They had issues, right? The term ecology took a thousand issues and made a movement out of them. We have an opportunity to fight for a better digital ecology. And if we can socialize these ideas, have them lying around, get on Canada land and spend an hour talking about them, then these ideas might be the things we reach for the next time we reach a crisis and we say something must be done. Corey, uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That is your Canada land. Listen, if you like this podcast, if you value it, please support us. There are but days left to get our highest tier of support, our champion level support for $10 a month. It's usually 15. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you're going to get premium access to all of our shows ad-free. You will get early releases, bonus content, our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. More than anything, you will be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everyone. Do it now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can email me. I'm at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at canadaland, our website, canadaland.com. Our senior producer is Bruce Thorson. Additional production and editing from Kristen Capicione, our audio editor and technical producer. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by so-called... Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. 
By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.